0: A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's b-a-h-a-i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Owen Allen, a Baha'i who grew up in rural Australia went to the big city for boarding high school and university where he studied physiotherapy. He returned to the rural life after university by settling in a rural part of Queensland where he ran into the Baha'i faith. His mother's first reaction to Owen becoming a Baha'i was, why did you join a religion whose members get killed? Referring to the persecution of the Baha'is in Iran. I started the interview by asking Owen to describe where he grew up and what was it like growing up there.
1: I grew up in uh, Atherton, uh, actually a little town on the Atherton Tableland in North Queensland, Australia, called Tolga. My family were a farming family. Yes, yeah, so, and I'm really back here for the last nearly 20 years now, have, have raised uh, the family back here as well.
0: And you went to school there, elementary school? Yeah, I went to primary school. Yeah, I went to primary
1: school in the local primary school and uh, probably was appreciated by a lot of rural... Uh, Families in your part of the country uh, you know, got up, got the school bus, would uh, arrive at the doorstep of the farm every morning and do the rounds until uh, all the farm children were picked up and, and uh, taken to the local primary school. In, in a, an, an odd uh, irony, my own sons went to that, well, my older sons went to that same pr- primary school. But when I got to uh, the high school uh, age, the feeling was maybe the local high school... Uh, probably wouldn't have achieved the academic standard my parents hoped for us all. So we were packed off to boarding schools uh, for for high school. Not far away, but just down to Cairns, which is probably uh, an hour and a half or a bit in those days, probably a bit more to drive down and back. So we stayed, went to a Catholic boarding school, uh, got our academic graduations to... Uh, and, and, in fact, we all, all went to uh, university. Um,
0: and what did you study at university?
1: I studied physiotherapy, mm-hmm. um, so that meant uh, going I- here to Brisbane, uh, University of Queensland was the only uh, course of physiotherapy. I'm talking about 1976 when I entered university.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There was only one other university had just uh, been opened in North Queensland uh, called the James Cook University. Uh, and it offered a, a few degrees, perhaps engineering and law and uh, something like that in those days of, of other interest, of course, because I grew up in a, a farming family uh we didn't really travel, so my degree of travelling up to the time I was seventeen was probably three hundred kilometers in every direction, so I was a really well traveled person and and uh, you know got on the large aeroplane to fly to Brisbane and saw skyscrapers for the first time in my life and that sort of thing at the age of of 17. So it was a bit of a journey that even to today, you know, we talk a lot in in Australia in my field of work about the difficulty rural children, youth have of going to big cities, going to universities and difficulties they have in adjusting to that uh, lifestyle. Well, it was was pretty difficult uh, uh, back in the late 70s.
0: How was it difficult for you when you went from the rural life to the city life?
1: I think the main difficulty was that you don't have any similar experience to draw from in your younger life. I mean, I didn't even have a city experience or um, in, in a funny sense, I suppose the boarding school experience prepared me somewhat because I was a little hardened to be away from the home situation and and I went to a college at the university, so I was a little bit used to living with a whole pile of other young people. And, and that, however, the pros and cons are there. I had an older brother who had who, who had gone to university ahead of me. And he had some friends, so there was a little bit of networking that soothed the way. Of, of course, I think virtually any youth going off to university quickly make friends. We had a lot of uh, rural people there at the college I went to, and. Quite a lot of them, though, had been actually the boarding schools in Brisbane itself, so um, they had a much larger network and were much more comfortable with the environment. Um, the other thing that's a bit of a difficulty in those days was boarding schools, particularly young men, were very strictly academic and sport-orientated, and, and you you know had very set study periods at night for homework, and, and they were all strictly enforced. And, and supervised, and when you went to a university where you were your own person, you had to discipline yourself, you <laughs> realised quickly, well, you weren't really used to that. And so there was a fairly high incidence of dropout rate from amongst my friends at university because simply I, they didn't have the internal self-discipline to do the study, even though, you know, in some cases they were what I would have considered had had more inherent intelligence than myself. I took a a year off at one stage because I was a bit confused about, you know, where, where life was leading in a sense in my course that I'd taken. And in a sense, when I look back at that, it was a little bit of the angst of trying to understand the world as well and your place in the world, the thing I wanted to do even at that age, with some passion, was to, you know, get out and serve humanity in some way. I remember thinking, I forget this university and um, go and work in the third world country. Surely some volunteer organisation will have me. And, and of course, I quickly found that, actually, overseas volunteer organisations don't really want someone without skills. They want someone with a lot of skills. So you know, I think that sort of educational process uh, uh, me back into university to complete my uh, degree and go on from there.
0: One of the basic teachings of the Baha'i faith is serving humanity. Now, you wanting to do that, did that occur before you were a Baha'i or as a result yes, of being yes, a Baha'i? Yes, I, I
1: didn't run into the um, faith until I'd been
0: working for some years. How do you account for having this desire helping humanity or serving humanity early on in your life? was it was your family how you were raised was that part of that or what, what?
1: look I think I think there were, there's a lot of influences certainly even though in some way my family you know was isolated in a, in the bigger social context well in one sense my grandfather was a pioneer of this area he came from England in the early 20th century and made his way up to this area and become one of the new group of hybrid maize breeders, you know, in a a very new era of science and agriculture uh, in Australia. And that's what initially this area was based upon, large timber cutting, a bit of mining and the growing of maize. So there was a, a bit of, I guess, initiative, motivation, I suppose, in the family heritage. My father also sort of did his own... Even though he only went to 15 at, uh, 15 years old at high school, he became more or less a self-taught uh, uh, engineer and took on some of the early farm machinery and, uh, and modified. I remember he bought case harvesters, which came from America, and modified them for the environment over here in the um, uh, late 50s, early 60s. Unfortunately, he lost his foot in the process because mm. he got it caught in one of the machines, but uh, managed to uh, carry on with a farming career with, mm. with only one foot in the and a prosthesis mm. and i think there was a lot of of talk about uh progress in a certain sense and probably in an ethical sense little things i i mean in the, the family stories we had uh, some Sikh friends that had come to australia in the late probably in the 1930s as young men and everyone else in the uh, district knew one of these men that we knew fairly well and they used to call him Peter, and, and actually we would get confused because we never knew who Peter was, because my grandmother had insisted we called him his proper name, which was Sarwan. You know, he said, you know, just take a bit of effort, and he <laughs> don't need to sort of give a person a, a different name just because you can't, you know, pronounce it very easily. I think there were lots of little bits and pieces that had impact on what the world was about from those people. Interestingly enough, the, the, as I got into adulthood and after I became a Baha'i, I looked back and I realised the sort of holes in that socialisation. Uh, even though there were stories from when my grandparents came and started farming, stories about their interactions with Indigenous people who were still really living a tribal life in, in the area, then there's a whole gap in the in the family stories. and And it really has been difficult for me over the years to... You know, fill in the gap of, of well, what, what happened to the Indigenous people in this area in that time, you know, because when I started to know them, they were going to school with me and living in town and, and things like that. But again, we didn't socialise a lot with the Indigenous population. As I said, I finished my uni degree and, and then at that stage I decided that, um, well, I hadn't seen even anything of Australia, you know, so... I took a job in a, a remote part of Queensland, a very small town of 2,000 people, right in the centre of the state, sheep-raising country, uh, wool wool country, flat land, you can get on the roof of the house and see for sort of miles and miles. Interesting in the sense that in Australia, the, the sheep population, as we call it, the sheep grazing population, tended to come from a background of perhaps a, initially maybe an upper-class background, and so... Education is very highly um, sought. The grazing families call people in sheep and, and, and cattle in Australia graziers because they don't re- really feed their animals. They let them graze on very big stations, which is our term for ranches here, and they can be tens of thousands, and sometimes we just talk about them in how many tens or hundreds of square miles and, uh, as you get, you know, riding right to the west to have people who were, you know, into um, really the, the business of agriculture in a different way and, and certainly um, were, were very well educated and sent their children obviously off to boarding schools and, and tertiary education.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I was working in the, in the health department in the hospital there and, and then I come into contact with our institution of the Royal Flying Doctor Service and, and in that area the Royal Flying Surgeon. And this was a, a surgeon who who basically you know had a pilot and um, he was based in a larger town but basically had uh, it was probably about a quarter of the state if you think of it it's pro- that's probably equal to one of your states in America in geographical size and that was his area and they would fly from town to town and have a surgical list and operate and if there was an emergency or an accident any time of day or night they'd they'd get in the plane and fly to it and it opened my mind to sort of, I guess, the start of the possibilities. People would come from overseas who were uh, medical students just to come and have some experience in in this service. And it was then through them that I started to say, oh, well, there's not only this bigger Australia, there's actually a bigger world out there. And so that little story probably sh- tells a bit of a story about how the, you know, you know the mind in terms of the world and what it was in at that era, I really needed a bit of training, I, I think. And and that was probably precursive to um, my understanding about the Baha'i Faith when I, I actually um, met the Baha'i Faith later on.
0: Right. So how many years were you in uh, the Queensland area? I was
1: just, uh, at that stage, went out for a, for a job and I stayed a year. I suppose somewhere in the back of my mind was always this uh, idea that I needed to a bit move around, learn about uh, things. So, I decided after a year I'd learn enough uh, there, and I I found a job, a little job actually back in this town that's my hometown. And I, I did a, a, what we call a locum, a relief job for six months, and then went back to another Western uh, Queensland town called Roma. Again, got another you know bundle of experience. But it was at that time that I really started to think that aspects of the socialization that uh, we had tended to, we tend to do in Australia, which was a lot mixed up with drinking alcohol and, um, and that, that I was saying, well, you know, this doesn't really suit me and this lifestyle isn't really sort of where I want to be. I started to read a little bit more. Interestingly enough, in those days, you might remember we had the Hare Krishnas were very strong. I was in America, Australia, England and and you'd see them on street corners if you went into a city often playing music and handing out literature and I'd collected a bit of this and and so I read the, uh, I think, the Bhagavad Gita at the age of 23 and and thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, But what I got from it was a bit of a nuance of even though it was a bit strange, in other ways it sort of resonated in terms of well, it's a little bit like Christ's teachings in some ways, you know, there was a lot of resonance there from uh, my education as a catholic i guess um, so I, I started sort of i suppose patching together a bit of an idea well you know there's, there's this big world out there these there's these multitude of religions i don't really know much about i'm sort of drifting in a, in a spiritual and sort of mental place at that stage so i returned to prayer and i decided to go to another job which was up uh, back in Cairns here Uh, Closer to us, and and I I was in a a period of uh, considerable prayerfulness. I guess at that stage, you know, saying a lot of prayers regularly about this issue of, you know, what should I really be doing in life? You know, what's the answers to this conglomeration of activity in the world? And I turned up at my job in Cairns, and within a month, uh, as I was trawling the library one day, I saw a little brochure on the on the notice board saying. talk at the library on such and such a night by uh, a dr Taib, sponsored by the baha'i faith and i thought well I'd, you know, i hadn't heard of this one and that's a strange sort of a sounding name for a doctor but i thought i uh, you know we say in for a in for a penny in for a quid or something and uh, and and so i went to um listen to this talk which was largely uh, a doctor from a iranian background who was talking about Uh, nutrition and psychology. He was a psychiatrist by training. But he also introduced the concept of religion and and reading writings from religion as part of health. Mm -hmm. And that was a bit of an interesting angle too for me. And as I talked to people who were there, who later on I realized that many of them were Baha'is. I was invited, of course, to firesides uh, by some of them.
0: Firesides being informative Baha'i meaning.
1: Uh, well, yes, it was just a, a small hangout discussion type of activity in someone's home. I, I mean, when I look back at it, I, I sort of chuckle to myself uh, uh, because uh, I remember talking to a, a couple of young men there. One was uh, one of your um, co nationalists, an American. An American. Who moved into, into, um, into Cannes, a musician. The other, in fact, I think they were both Americans. The other was a, um, a helicopter pilot who, who was working in uh, Papua New Guinea. If I remember, and, and I had no contact with him, so I, I don't know much about where he ever ended up. As we were talking, I was saying, Well, you know, it, it occurs to me that we live in a, a global society, and, mm. <laughs> you know, I thought, I thought I was coming up with a new idea. Later, later on, I, I realized after I did do a couple of firesides that I was perhaps coming up with a bit of an old idea. <laughs> perhaps that's what. Led uh, these young men to invite me to uh, a fireside. In any case, <laughs> the the thing was, yes, there was a, a lot of like mindedness uh, going on in that those discussions uh, mm. at that
0: stage. Just to backtrack a little bit, you made reference to going or returning to prayer. It sounded like you had some sort of spiritual life growing up that you might have let go for a while and mm-hmm. then sort of returned to
1: quite interesting it it sometimes is a question that comes to me and even some of my friends ask it of me maybe of themselves they're asking it for some reason in fact probably out of my whole family when i went to i was somehow attracted to religion so i think even before i went to school one of my aunts used to was was very you know religious in a in a christian sense i think she's she's a baptist now and i'm not sure whether she declared herself strictly a Baptist in those days that she read the the Bible and, and I like the stories and I like the sense of them even from an early age and when we went to school in Australia we have a system of um, religious education in state schools so it's a, a period that the state government education department says we set aside an hour or two every week and if a religious organisation wants to teach their um, congregation of children in, in the school they can take that time to do so so as a a baptized catholic i was you know sent to the catholic classes and i think quickly was enamored with the the stories and the sense of of spirituality and sacrifice of jesus and that really grew Uh, even though my mother and father were um well my father wasn't religious at all even in that name he he uh, tended not to he tended to I think that he was a Christian by action, but couldn't really abide by religious organisation. My mother was from an Irish Catholic family, and that tended to mean, well, you were a Catholic by birth, even if you didn't do much about it. Mm -hmm. So they never really went to church much. Um, My other brothers and sisters didn't really take on the same level of interest that I seemed to do. Uh, when I went to boarding school, as a Catholic boarding school, was a boon in some ways because I did learn a lot from the uh, Marist Brothers Order about, I guess, the some of the more higher order ethical circumstances in the history of Catholicism, maybe Christianity, and of course there was was access to chapel and uh, churches and even a local a cathedral and. You know, when I was 13 or so, we, my voice was, you know, still good enough to sing in the choir. and So, yes, there was, I think at that early stage, there was a sense that a very strong love relationship with Jesus and God and the spiritual feeling. The interesting thing was around about fourteen, fifteen, 15, I suppose, was I started to realise that my questions were outgrowing the answers that I was actually getting from the the clergy and uh, uh, that were around me, and that was really became an interesting time. So even though for that the rest of those next couple of years, I still followed through on the the
0: religious commitments. Oh, and what were those questions that that were starting to well, outgrow the answers? Well, interestingly
1: enough, they were probably fairly um, you, you know basic questions of social life, but they were things like because in the catholic church you have very obvious differential between the priests who don't get married and the rest of the congregation who get married and raise family. so those issues about well, what's this thing about marriage and what's so important about you know what's the connection between spirituality and marriage and spirituality seem to be you seem to be tossing it all on the side and not getting married <laughs> most of the people are getting married and, and seem quite spirit you know so there were probably those types of social um, questions mm-hmm. there were some dissonances between behavior and and the talk mm-hmm. as well so in a in a boarding school at that day the, the, the clergy who ran the boarding school were mostly men who had not got married and you know worked with family and they they were really trying to guide young teenage boys through a puberty process of so there was a, a slightly abusive i think approach to how you how you educated young young men you know a lot of caning and hitting and you know violence and things like that so yes yeah, so it it just raised the sort uh, i think a lot of dissonance about what what all that means i i guess the other thing which was does come to me which did occur to me at that time was the big issue of you have a bible which has a whole pile of you moses you have you know you before that you go back to adam and 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 then since Moses, you have a whole pile of lesser prophets all writing and and teaching the people, and then you have Jesus, and then you have for two thousand years, nothing mm. in a sense you know right. you have the East Catholic Church with its big organization grows up, but in terms of this guidance, this really um strong spiritual guidance coming through. That didn't seem to be the case, and I wondered a lot about, well, why did the guidance sort of stop with Jesus? Mm-hmm. And if Jesus said he was going to return, that was all very well, but I didn't get a sense from the clergy that were teaching your religion that they actually believed that. You mm-hmm. know, the, the, it was a glossed over bit of the, um, of the process. Of course, it was probably quite different from people's experience who grew up in, uh, in the more Protestant traditions at that time where maybe a little bit more emphasis was being put on uh, you know when Jesus returns, but it certainly wasn't in, in my Catholic upbringing. And I wondered about that, and I wondered, well, you know, if he says he's going to return, he should return, you know, and, and, and when and how, and it didn't make a heck of a lot of sense what that was about. And so when I was probably in university, that question probably made me put the Bible into more or less an ethical story category of learning Mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. In other words, I stopped believing Jesus was going to return. I stopped believing that the stories were really literally true, even historically true Mm -hmm. in any real sense, Mm -hmm. and basically started to think of them as messages, ethical stories, you know,
2: right.
1: might as well have just been Aesop's fables, you know, right. in, in a different form. For some years then I had drifted away from a real uh, religious belief. Interestingly enough, I held on to the belief, I, I couldn't divulge the belief in God. There, there was something just, just strongly within me at that time that said that, you know, there had to be a creator, or, or at least it was quite on the cards there was a creator of some sort. Whatever the rest of this, whatever was happening in the, in the world, perhaps we could unravel it uh, with that help. And I think a, a certain sense of the concept that I, I sort of held on to at that time, and I think I still hold on to a lot to today, is first trust in God, then everything else will, will turn out okay. Mm. And I think that was where I, I was I you know, mentally, probably socially. wasn't really quite sure where everything was going or how it was going to turn out but I guess I held on to that real thread and through reading some of the other religions eventually even about you know Buddhism and Hinduism and, and in those days you, know, you might remember in the early 80s, late 70s there were movements in, of things like transcendental meditation
2: mm-hmm.
1: they had sort of little rituals of meditation that people were you know becoming exposed to were a bit popular in some circles and so I took some of these techniques with me and I thought, well, you know, you can, if you're going to have, say, you know, some prayers over and over, well, maybe whatever prayer you said would be okay. And I, I knew one prayer which was really the Lord's Prayer from a Christian background, so I remember saying that an awful lot um, at one stage just in, uh, in sort of a whole bundle of, of time over and over again. And I think, in a some way, it, it's both created some spiritual direction, um, maybe some awareness in the mind, created a sense of fine tuning, I suppose, of the mind for the things to look out for in a spiritual context. And I know that I looked at different areas of, you know, spirituality that came by. It was probably really the beginning of what became known as the New Age movement at that stage. And so there were quite a lot of different spiritual notions going around and I found it interesting that some of them you could pass them by easier I suppose than others and and I think that had to do with the prayer and the, the meditation the, the, the developing the spiritual fine tuning at a very fundamental level and I think later when I read Baha'u'llah's writings about it I saw the sense of that you know that you really uh, you can you can start to sift the um, what is really in australia we call it fair dinkum you know fair dinkum uh spiritual content from the 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 sort of perhaps more trivialized practice or ritual that might become known as as spiritual but is really just a a bit of a ritual and also the the depth of the the teachings themselves i think some teachings new age teachings spiritual teachings are at such a transparent depth Mm -hmm. you know that they they don't really hold you they don't really hold your heart very strongly really Mm -hmm. and when i eventually read the writings of baha'u'llah it it, you know it was really like you know some giant magnet that just sort of grabs hold of you and and says this is this is the serious stuff you know
0: Mm. so you went to these firesides yeah and then what happened
1: well, I, I can remember sitting in my first fireside and saying, all right, this is a Baha'i faith. What's a Baha'i faith about? And, uh, and getting the, the whole lot. And in fact, I didn't have any questions until it really dawned on me that these people were saying that uh, there weren't no, only one manifestation of God. There were two and not only Christ is the time but there were two manifestations of God in our remember saying.
0: and you're referring to And yep. I just want to give a little background for folks when you're saying you found out not only there was one but there were two being yep. uh, the Bab uh, or the, which is Arabic for the gate was the precursor to Baha'u'llah for a background of who the Bab and Baha'u'llah are you can go to Baha'i.org and you can get a historical account of the lives of the Báb and Baha'u'llah. So, go ahead.
1: Australia is largely an agnostic society.
2: Mm.
1: We we have at the moment probably less than 50% of people declared a religion. Mm. Um, And uh, certainly we have very, very small numbers of people who go to church on a regular basis.
2: Mm.
1: And we have a high level, I would say, of people who would be confirmed atheists. In that social context that you're coming from, people don't have the—they don't have a natural acceptance of real religion as as people with prophecies and visions and things like that in their in their life. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I'd left that behind. I'd decided that that was all stories. You know, that was just good stories to base an ethics on. But but then to sit in a room with some people who said, "Oh no, there's uh, <laughs> you know there's renewed revelation." That's a, that's a strong, very strong uh, thing to to be getting across. Right. That's not to say that it's you know overwhelmingly strong, but I think there might be a lot of people that would need a lot of maybe getting used to the idea. So what happened um, to
0: you, Owen, when you heard that?
1: I think, interestingly enough, it started drawing up all the old biblical lessons that I'd had about about prophecy and about the return of Christ and things like that. On the one hand, I was very, very interested, of course, in the teachings of the Bab and Baha'u'llah for a for a new world society I was I was incredibly interested in that because they really paralleled a lot of my own thinking at the time and so I wanted to read more about it, I obviously wanted to read more about the basically spiritual enterprise how you become a, a more spiritual person, so I was really interested to read about what they had to say about that the issue of them being a manifestation of God was a question that then needed to be because it was out there, in my mind, needed to be it needed to be answered, mm-hmm. in my mind. In, in other words, I either needed to if, if the claim was there, I needed to place it in the true basket or the false basket very firmly for myself. So yes, I kept going back. The the people that I had close contact, I got on very well with them. I could drop around to their place and have a cup of tea and ask some questions, and 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 I'd read. I, I, my teachers were pretty hard on me, you know. One of the, I think about the third book they gave me was God Passes By. They were tough. <laughs> yes yeah, <remember>
0: so, <laughs> so describe uh, why that was a difficult book.
1: Well, this was a, uh, God Passes By is a, largely a historical work written by the uh, great grandson of the founder of the Baha'i Faith who was the uh, head of the Baha'i Faith at the time, a man called Shoghi Effendi. He was known known to us, uh, and still known to us, as the guardian of the faith. And uh, as one of his goals, he he translated a lot of the writings from Arabic and Persian into English, and he also um, exposed the history of the the Baha'i faith in some detail to Baha'is, particularly Western Baha'is, who didn't have access to that information up to then. Uh, but he had been to Oxford University for the purpose of developing a strong ability in English. So he wrote a very strong prose, often with very long sentences, with several concepts within each one. And and really, in that first reading, I can remember... Um, you know, just being left with images of hardship and snow-covered mountains and chains and prisons, and it was, <laughs> it was a bit like that, I think.
0: Right. Um, All the things Baha'u'llah endured.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, so it was the history of, of their life, the exile that Baha'u'llah was sent to, because he was really supporting a, a claim that went against the accepted norms of the clergy and the um, government in Persia at that in the nineteenth century
2: mm-hmm.
1: I think a little bit the The reason why my friend gave me that book was because of I suppose the perhaps slightly academic questions that I was asking at some level, yes, I handled it okay, but at another level, it's a big work to go through, and I'll probably still you know use it as a reference book, and you still end up reading books like that in bits and pieces over the years because you just never get to the bottom of them. However, the crucial question for me at the end of the day was I had a fear of making the wrong decision about that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, th- and that fear really stemmed back to the uh, religious education of hell and damnation, you know, if you, mm. if you choose the path of the devil, you know, and, and unfortunately for a lot of religious education, I think the path of the devil isn't the path of wrongdoing it 's the path of just being having a different idea mm. and that again was a, a really hard but I think necessary concept for me to get a hold of was that that it was fear induced uh, education that in fact at a at a prophecy level you could clearly show that the whole fulfilled all the conditions of the return of Christ but that I realized that that wasn't the that wasn't really necessarily the education that was being given around, you know, one religious view against another. In, in my younger education, it was more that people were what we called patch defending. In other words, the Baptists would say the Catholics will go to hell and the Catholics mm, would say all right. the Protestants would go to hell. And that was because they were just wrong and didn't really believe in Christ and all this sort of thing. And of course, you know, you know that's, I think that's a really, when I look back to it, And I think for today, I think that's a really damaging type of idea to give to children of any religion. It's damaging for themselves. and makes it, you know, puts them in a really bad mental state situation. And I think as we're seeing in the world today, from some quarters it just becomes ultimately destructive to society in a a very literal sense. But having got through that, having got through the, the, the fear and really working out that this is a bit of a test for me in a, in a spiritual sense. If I've put all the bits together, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: at some stage I've got to take the big step. And that was something that was just going through my own mind. The people that I was going to firesides with were quite relaxed about the whole situation. They were you know, just happy for me to turn up and ask hard questions if I could, and, and that was that. With
0: no arm twisting going on
1: that's right yeah there was no um i, I never came a, a, under any sense that the people were in in any way um creating that same stress in, uh, as well like saying to me that if you don't believe in the baha'i faith you'll go to hell you know um so you better hurry up and believe in the baha'i faith and, and all that sort of things but it didn't take me that long i mean i think a couple of months of really fairly solid investigating and thinking and and praying i'd uh, convinced myself that Baha'u'llah was indeed a manifestation of God. And not only that was the answer to the prophecies of the Bible, mm-hmm. and I was able to confirm my belief in Baha'u'llah in that sense very strongly. Yeah.
0: Now, Owen, was there an immediate impact to what you were doing in your life when you became a Baha'i?
1: There was an impact. It wasn't something that was really dramatic, but it was it was the impact of going from what you might call wishy-washy, to affect commitment. Mm -hmm. And by that I mean that, as I said earlier, you know, uh, for some years I wasn't happy with the socialisation that I was involved in, particularly around drinking and the way that we just tended to do things as young people in Australia at the time. So then, although I didn't drink very much to actually make a commitment, saying I'm a Baha'i now and I I don't drink at all, Mm -hmm. that's a strong social impact. And it does, after a while, you realise that You don't lose your friends, but what you do is you stop necessarily going to the same parties they go to because you get a bit bored with them. You know, the reality is that socialisation that occurs around a lot of drinking is is actually just plain boring. So I just drifted away from those types of events and functions and and you seek socialisation in other forms. So there's a bit of a change in the way you do things. And I think then the, the... you start reorganizing some priorities in life about because the Bahai faith itself has certain um, structures. I don't know if you've talked about them on your program, but things like a regular uh, community meetings we call the 19-day feast, and there's holy days because there are events historically important and sacred events in the Bahai faith around the Bab and Bahá'u'lláh and the revelation. The Bahai faith doesn't have clergy, but it does its own administration so there's administrative detail to become involved in and then there's the I think the big mission of Baha'u'llah which is really to promote those teachings his teachings throughout the world which is to engage the people in the world in every community of the world with these concepts of what is it to be a world citizen how do we eradicate prejudice from the world how do we bring humanity together Uh, How do we raise the um, status of women? How do we educate all the children? And how do we ensure proper scientific progress um, without any destructive elements? How do we achieve world peace? So these teachings of Baha'u'llah that go towards solving these problems become very important and very important priority for a uh, Baha'i. Something that I took fairly seriously, although Again, I wasn't sure how to do the job. Sort of bumbled around. However, I did have some, again, just by, I suppose, the environment, being within the Baha'i environment and being in Cairns. About a year after I had declared my faith in Baha'u'llah, I met a man from who was living in New Guinea. He wasn't a, a national Papua New Guinea man. He, he was, I think, he was Indian or maybe even Sri Lankan Uh, by background and he was in Cairns because of his son who had been born had some particularly rare types of medical problems that needed to be um, treated in Australia and I was thinking of doing some travelling and I I said to him look I'm really having trouble putting together a bit of a a travel package where I can be of assistance to this teaching of the Baha'i faith, teaching of Baha'u'llah's work and he said well He said, just come to New Guinea. We've got plenty of work and we can put you on a plan. And so, um, yeah, I did. I I got the visa and uh, went to New Guinea, not for a long time, just for six weeks. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting. Look, I have to uh, just backtrack a little bit. You you asked before about impacts of of the Baha'i faith. And when I actually investigated the faith and decided I was going to become a Baha'i, one of the first things I did was I travelled up to where my parents live and I, and I said to them, look, I've joined this religion called the Baha'i Faith. My father, who was very disinterested in religion, didn't say much at all. I think he grunted or something. My mother said two things. She said, First thing, she said, what was wrong with your other religion? <laughs> and the second thing she asked was, why would you pick a religion that they kill people in? And I looked at
2: her and I said, "How
1: would you know anything about that?" And she said, oh, "I've read about the Baha'i for years." Wow! <laughs> and and she hadn't said anything to me, and I had no before I met Baha'is, I had no um, knowledge of the faith. So really, you know, it, it's interesting um, the the dimensions that of knowledge and and what people do with them, like I yeah, the decisions they make about them. Very them?
0: interesting.
1: And then I realized that the aunt that used to teach me, teach me the Bible when I was a child, she worked in a big apartment store and as a, an office manager. And one of her workers, many years before, had become a Baha'i, and of course she wasn't really happy about that, and she wasn't really happy with me becoming Baha'i because I was, uh, you know, because she was a, a strong Baptist and she didn't mm. think this was leading in the right direction. Right. Nonetheless she accepted it and has accepted it with good grace and. As I eventually married a, an Iranian Baha'i woman, my aunt, you know, we've enjoyed very good relations and friendships over the years.
0: Yeah, you probably um, have expanded her horizons.
1: One thing that I've been surprised, I think, to learn is that at least there's, in Christianity at least, the, the, the people who I've mostly met who, who are committed Christians are committed to the tolerance concepts you know the good Samaritan concept so they might say you're not this is this is hell and damn nation but you know they won't strike you out for it So, this might be different obviously I've read enough and heard enough stories to know this is not the same you know in all parts of the world and in all situations but I have been generally comforted in Australia by the fact that the Christian community has that after general attitude you know that even though you don't see eye to eye you can still be friends and still work together at different levels. And in fact, if you talk at that level of just, you know, what's a moral way to live life, for example, you've still got a lot to talk about with each other.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Owen Allen, an Australian Baha'i who is a physiotherapist. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org. We can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.